I've heard every possible pronunciation. They're all good. Just a uh, bunch of sounds together. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of five to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job, but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 175 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest. I should have asked how to say your name, so I'm going to guess. It's Chris Eidhoff. Yeah, that's right. Hello from Berlin, Germany. That's a long ways away. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. So, hello, everybody. I'm Chris. I, um, I make this site called ObjectiveC.io. Um, I think the, um, many people know it. Not many people know how to pronounce it. <laughs> I don't know what's the right pronunciation, but that's how we pronounce it. And uh, we used to write this magazine for two years. And then we wrote three books about Swift and Core Data. And these days we run a video series called Swift Talk. Interesting. So we brought you on today to talk about structs and mutations in Swift. You wrote a blog post about that, and we'll make sure that winds up in the show notes. Do you want to kind of give us a brief explanation of what's in there, and then we can kind of pick it apart from there? Yeah. So depends a bit on where you're coming from, but structs behave very differently from classes, for example, and also from classes in Objective-C or classes in Swift. And one thing is that if you define a struct with as a let variable, like let x equals 5, then you cannot really mutate it anymore. So then it, it sort of says that x will always be the value of 5. So structs are all about values. Then you, if you define, define a variable as, as a var variable, then you can mutate it. So this is the same with arrays in Swift, which are also structs. So you cannot really modify an array that's defined with let, only arrays that are defined with var. And so this, the way to modify things defined with var is by using mutating methods on structs. And these are a bit strange because only when you mark a method as mutating, you can, you can modify things. And Swift draws at least a little bit of inspiration from functional programming and functional programming is a very popular thing. And a lot of functional programmers say that mutation is bad. And so that's sort of what my post was about saying that mutations on structs aren't as bad as everybody thinks and that they're actually really nice and that you still have all these benefits of, of functional programming. And yeah, in my post, I sort of try to to look at how mutation works and, and yeah, what, what the effects are. So I think maybe what would be good for me is if you talk just a little bit about some of the, so, so we're, I think we'll get into using structs and value types in Swift, but I, I'd like to maybe talk about some of the problems that this solves. So what, what are some problems with using, with mutating things? And of course, 
where I'm coming from, where I think a lot of our listeners are coming from is, uh, you know, I've done Objective-C for a long time and, and Swift is still relatively a new thing and is requiring a little bit of a shift in my thinking. And in Objective-C, I mean, you really have value types, but they're primitives, you know, that came from C, basically. So generally, the the, the things you're working with in your Objective-C code are instances of classes and, and they're always reference types. Uh, so what are some of the problems that having you know mutable state can cause yeah that's a it's a very good question it's well one of the biggest problems is that there might be unexpected changes in your state so it's nice that you can mutate things and i think mutation is a really good thing to have but it's not so nice if you don't expect mutation so i think every objective c programmer knows that you shouldn't be mutating an NS array or an NS mutable array while you're iterating through it because the iterator will break and, and your code will blow up. This is something that you learn and then, you know, you, you make that mistake once or in my case a couple of times and then, you know, then you know it, you learn it and you, you don't make that mistake again. Um, but that's sort of in a way easy to see. So you, you look at your for loop and you see where it crashes and, you know, all is good. But it becomes a bit harder when one part of your code is expecting that your object doesn't change and another part of your code somewhere far away is mutating it. And especially when you're doing async stuff. And one of the problems with that is that async mutation often just is not a problem. And then sometimes it crashes your app. So it becomes really hard to debug. And in Objective-C, the foundation, the designers of, of foundation, they they knew this. So there's already NS array and NS mutable array, and there's NS string and NS mutable string. And mm, this is one solution, but it's sort of not really perfect because mm, let's say you, you have a method and it takes an NS data and you pass in an, an NS mutable data, it works because NS mutable data is a subclass of NS data. And within that method, however, you just see the NS data. So it's under the hood mutable, but you don't know within the method. So you have to be very careful and always make copies before you start relying on the fact that things are immutable. And so the Swift designers said it, sort of said, like, we'll do it completely differently and we'll make immutable the default and sort of make mutable opt-in if you use var and then we don't have any of these problems and everything is always copied by defaults. Um, and then they added some optimizations to make it faster. And it's sort of the other edge of the, of the spectrum. It also has its problems, but it's at least a bit safer. Well, that's, a, that's a good point. There are, there are two approaches for why having things non-mutable are beneficial. One, as, as you mentioned, it allows the compiler to reason about things like they know this will never change. So the compiler can do all sorts of deep voodoo to make our code run faster and smaller and things like that. And also in our own code, you also mentioned this, this case where if you're doing multi-threaded code and you've got an array, okay, well, I'm not going to modify anything in my, in my for loop, but maybe some other code is going in there and modifying the array at some other point. And at that point, um, if you're being lazy about it, you just copy the array before you do anything, which can cause all sorts of other problems. Um, if you could have the compiler guarantee that this object is not going to change, you have a lot more confidence that you're not going to blow something up. 
because mm-hmm. the, co- the compiler is looking for that stuff for you. That's the benefit. But exactly, I, yeah. What you're what you're getting at is, you know, mutating is valuable too. So, what what are the cases where, you know, mutating is usable? Because I've I've never used mutating keyword in a struct. So, what like what are some good use cases for it? Well, basically, anytime you want to change something. So, if you consider array. So in Swift, if you say let x equals and then some array, you cannot change x. It's immutable. But if you would have said var x equals and then some array, you can change. So you can, for example, append or change an element at a specific index. So all of these operations, they're not magical. They're just implemented with mutating. And that sort of is a signal to the compiler that you're going to change the, the value. And so anytime you, you have a struct and you want to change a value, you have to do this mutating or write a mutating function or, or um, a subscript or, or whatever. And otherwise you cannot even change the struct. So if you don't want to use mutating, you have to return completely new struct values. And that would be very inefficient. So what about what parts of the making new struct values inefficient? The way that structs work is their value types. And this means that whenever you create a new variable or whenever you pass a struct to um, a function or a method, it creates a copy. And that is super expensive. So creating all these copies is really, really expensive. And the compiler has this optimization called copy and write. And this allows the compiler to, to remove a lot of unnecessary copies. So it sort of only does the minimal, uh, or, or only when you start changing your struct, it start it, it actually makes a copy. And if you use a mutating keyword, you can sort of mute it in place. You know, like, for example, if you would implement quicksort, which, you know, we only did in, in, in school and afterwards we never had to do it again. But if you wanted to do an in-place quicksort, then you can do that with the mutating keyword, and it would be much harder if you would return a new array, because then a new array gets allocated and it will be very inefficient. So it sort of allows you to be a little bit more efficient, and it also allows you to write more natural code, because we just want to say x.append5 instead of saying array by appending elements. So I'm curious, you mentioned the the optimization technique that Swift uses, and you know, from my days as a C and C++ programmer, I just learned that the compiler was so much smarter than I was that I didn't worry that much about what type of structs I was using because the compiler would throw most of that out. And I'm not sure how far Swift has caught up with that, but at least, you know, uh, cases where, you know, I'm using a struct because that's what I need to reason about this, but the compiler can break that down into primitives and just do all sorts of different weird voodoo. But are there any benchmarks between doing a bunch of uh, struct copies where doing the immutable thing where we're doing the we're getting the optimizations versus just a struct in place have, have people been doing any benchmarks yeah i think people are doing benchmarks i don't know if there's like any official place for that but yeah it's it's a double-edged sword this copy and write thing so most of the time the compiler will do things that are great uh, and it will just, you know, remove a lot of unnecessary copies. But sometimes it doesn't. And it can be really hard to debug. And it can be very counterintuitive. So 
Yeah. For example, if you have an array, you get all these copy and write optimizations and, and you can mutate things in place. If you put that array into a dictionary, then you completely lose that. And this is something the Swift team wants to fix, but it's really hard to know this and to detect this unless you know you start profiling yourself. And there are many more of these cases where it's sort of hard to 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 figure out. So for example, if you doing a for loop and you're changing some kind of struct value inside the for loop most of the time that's going to be way more efficient than doing it the functional way which is also very hip these days right with reduce or something like that so it can be very tricky to debug this performance because it's sort of hidden away and they're not i don't know what what good strategies are for that no i get what you're saying if you have larger data structures and you're mixing matching mutable and immutable if they're large it and you have to change things it you know it can cause problems if you make everything immutable you have to rebuild everything every time especially if you're doing it a lot so i I can definitely see where that would create some performance problems yeah exactly i I definitely agree like if you're mixing and matching you have a big dictionary with an array that you want to be immutable maybe other things are depending on that and you just want to do it in place because you know, we're developing client apps, which they have state. State exists, and it gets updated sometimes, and people need to check out what they're doing. But no, I agree with you. Yeah, it's for me, I've been investigating the behavior of Swift for, for quite a while, and, 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 and my understanding is, is still slowly growing. And the more I realize how it works, the more I realize how difficult it is and how complicated. And on the other hand, most of the time it's just fine. And, and, you know, performance is not something to worry about until you actually have a problem there. And I think if you're sort of, no, don't do things that are too stupid, then everything is going to be fine. But it's, it's interesting to see how this really cool technique that they have, like, for example, copy and write, which seems like it magically solves everything, in the end, also causes some issues. Yeah, it sounds like it solves a lot of problems. Uh, it'll give most of our applications reasonable performance, that, so we're fine with it. But you've brought up some edge cases where things can go awry in a hurry. Yeah, but just to go back to the benefits, because... So we talked a bit about the problems, but in the end, the cool thing about structs is that they are value types and they are copied everywhere. And you don't really have to worry about about making those copies yourself. And it really helps in writing safer code. So I found that a whole class class of bugs isn't just doesn't happen because of that. And even Though in Objective-C or when you're interfacing with Objective-C or UIKit or Coco, you you have to use classes a lot. The times where you can use structs, they're really powerful and they can really help for the simplicity of your code. I'm I'm maybe having a hard time asking this articulately, but I'm so there are also times when you really want the fact that some state has changed to be communicated across parts of your program. So you make a change to, you know, you f- you fetch new data from the network and update some model data with with new information you've got and you want your ui to be updated to display that so there are there are ways for for solving that problem that we've all kind of 
done in Objective-C that I think are, are common, but we're using reference types, which allows us to use patterns that maybe don't work if we're using value types. And it does seem like, you know, you want to use value types for your model data. So you do that. What, what are some strategies for, for communicating when you have had a, you know, a change in state? Yeah, that's a good point. So structs make this both very easy and very difficult. So if you're used to things like KVO, then it's going to be different. And, you know, the, the patterns like KVO, they, they worked really well and they served us really well. But there's also some issues with it. So if you, for example, have your model data and you forget to subscribe, then, you know, you might have initialized the class making some, some assumptions. And then at some point, the assumptions don't hold anymore. So you have to be very careful when you, when you, when you, also when you use classes and reference types for your model data. So value types, they can, solve this problem a little bit, but then there are other problems. So let's say you have a table view controller which has which displays people and you're gonna model people as a struct. So you have this person struct, you put lots of persons in an array. And the cool thing is that you can then observe that array. Instead of observing every individual person, whenever something changes, so if a person gets added to the array, but also if somewhere deep inside the person struct, let's say the element zero, the person's address's street changes, then the entire array gets a notification. So there's this did set uh, that you can use on a variable, on an array variable, for example. And then, so basically you get, you get this notification that something changed in your array. And unlike KVO, you don't know what changed. So you're going to get a notification, something in the array changed, and then you can listen to that. The upside is you know that whenever anything changes, you do get this notification, no matter how deep inside that array or inside the values in the array. The downside is you, you don't have any granular notifications. So then you have to sort of compute a diff or something to, to really update your table view. And so in that sense, value types can make it a lot easier, but also uh, more tricky to to solve these problems. It sounds to me like maybe this is one of those things where we've got the the kernel of a good idea with value types, but some of the larger patterns around it are yet to be established. So I think there's talk of work to be done on Swift in, in terms of replacing things like KVO. Because right now, I don't know if there's really a good, you know, good direct replacement for some of the problems that were solved with KVO, but maybe that's just part of working in a, in a brand new language with a lot of good ideas and a lot of work to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are definitely problems in, that KVO solves that aren't solved in Swift. And likewise, things like meta programming or key value coding, is it's the same story. That said, there, for example, things like value types they do really solve a lot of these problems, but in a very different way. And when I started learning Swift, I didn't really understand why I would need all of that and why I would need to solve my problems differently. And 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 to be fair, I didn't really understand how value types worked. And it took quite a while, but now I really like them. And, and I think I would really miss them if I, if I would have to go back to Objective-C. So it's, I think... It's not so easy to see the advantages unless you've been working with them for a while. At least that's that was my experience. I think, yeah, I think I'm actually sort of in the middle of that experience with um, probably less 
real Swift experience than than you have, and uh, of course you've been writing about it and, and and stuff. But you know, I'm still sort of in the well. I I don't fully understand how to make use of some of these new ideas that are in Swift, and I'm still trying to get my mind around them and figure out how I can use them in in real apps to to make my code better. Yeah, I'm the same way. I, I maybe yeah I maybe have a little bit more experience, but I'm still trying to figure out how to apply everything and you know how how to improve my code and make my code simpler. And you know that's also a really hard thing because if if you really use all these nice Swift features, it's going to be very hard for somebody who doesn't know those features to come to my code base and understand them. And this is, I think for me, this is one of the hardest problems of, of, you know, writing, writing simple and clean code because you want to basically use all of the sort of established features of the language, but not too many because then, you know, newcomers will not understand. And I don't know, I find it really hard to find a good balance there. Do you have the same, the same problems? Definitely. I think they're magnified for me because my full-time job is lead instructor teaching people Swift that have never, many of them have never programmed before. So certainly I can't just go wild with, you know, every cool high-level feature that Swift offers or uh, it becomes really hard to introduce these new people to the code. But at the same time, I want to, you know, I want to use them in a, in a way that, that students can learn and understand and, and how to make use of, of Swift, the things that make Swift special. Yeah, that sounds really difficult. I I like teaching people who are very experienced because, you know, I find it really hard to imagine and sort of go back to that beginner's mindset. It's, I think it's, um, it sounds like a very difficult job. It is, but it's also fun, right? You get to see people go from knowing nothing to sort of having their mind opened and start being able to do all kinds of stuff that you know is pretty cool and and pretty quick, and and they get excited about it. So, certainly not all bad. Yeah, that's the the problem with working with a language. It's not a tiny little language. You know, if you do C, it's a small language. You can learn it pretty quickly. And I, I guess that's not a great example because you can do a lot of weird things with C. But a small language, you have one way of doing things. It's very opinionated. Here's how you do it. And with other languages that have been around are growing, and Swift is becoming rather large, it's opinionated on how to do things, but it lets you gives you control of like mutating. But that's always that's always the challenge. If you worry with a big language that has a lot of features, you know, like which ones do you use? Um, do you go with the, the bleeding edge feature, even though it's not necessary? You can do it just fine with the other way. But my approach is I, I try to keep things simple if if I can and use the the more esoteric features when they're providing a clear benefit. So we're not dealing with the same thing where you have someone that's not used to that feature coming on this code base and not knowing to use it because that's a, that's a real problem because, you know, code's meant for people to understand too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, but I think, you know, this, this goal of writing simple code, even that, like when, when you try to write simple code for me, it's really hard because what is simple code? And I think that really depends on the person who's reading. I don't think in, in many cases, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to say, uh, this is simpler, this is simpler, because, you know, it really depends on who's reading it. And for me, sometimes I think a for loop is a lot simpler, and sometimes I think a map over an array is a lot simpler. And there will many, be many people who agree, disagree with me, and, and they will be right as well. And it's I think it's very hard to find a balance there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
most languages other than Swift that Swift developers are writing in are used to a for loop. They've been around forever. Map has also been around for a long time, but it hasn't been as widely used in the languages that most Swift developers are using. So if you've been doing functional programming for a long time, you're very familiar with Map. But most of us started doing object-oriented, where you just procedural stuff, where you just for loop everything. So that's a more common pattern even though mapping is very powerful and the right approach in a lot of cases. Yeah, exactly. So what kind of issues did you guys have with structs so far in, in when using them? Or did you have any issues? I think the biggest issue I've had is so far, most of my work in Swift has been on in code bases that were mostly Objective-C, where you know I was adding Swift to an existing project instead of start, starting from scratch. Although I imagine you... you you know, run into some of these same problems even in a from scratch Swift project. But but basically, if if your Swift code needs to interact with Objective C at all, or especially pass values into it, it becomes difficult to use structs because they don't bridge into Objective C. Well, I suppose they minimally bridge into Objective C now in Swift three, but not in a not in a way that your Objective C code can really use them. Yeah, absolutely. I. I remember at last year at Swift Summit in San Francisco, there was a talk by Andy Matushek, and he explained some of these problems, and, and he had some really good solutions as well, but it wasn't beautiful. Right, and I think maybe to some degree that's a price that has to be paid if we're going to keep using Objective-C and Swift together. So, you know, one can hope that someday Objective-C is not in the picture and, and we don't have this problem, but... For now, it's still sort of a real thing. Yeah, and I think it'll stay like that for quite a while. I mean, all of UIKit is written in Objective-C, right? So so, so I think it, it'll take a really long time before we sort of can not worry about bridging anymore. Yep. All of UIKit is written in Objective-C, and I was just looking at the documentation for the new UI feedback generator, which is the API for using the Taptic Engine. It's, I think, only for the new Taptic Engine in the iPhone 7. You know, it's probably the newest API we have right now, at least um, in terms of it being public. And of course, it's all still Objective-C. Yeah, I think as far as I've heard, outside of the Swift team, people aren't really writing Swift inside Apple, at, at least not until there is ABI stability. So it'll take quite a while. So even like at next WWDC, we probably won't have any Swift frameworks. 2018, though, right? <laughs> we can hope. <laughs> Chris, I want to, there's probably more to talk about about value types, but I, I kind of want to just talk to you a little bit about Objective-C.io, or I, perhaps I pronounced that wrong, Objective-C.io. No, no, but, <laughs> any pronunciation is fine. I've heard every possible pronunciation. They're all good. Just munch a uh, bunch of sounds together. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about how this got started? Yeah, a few years ago. How long was this ago? Five years ago, I just moved to Berlin and I wanted to go to a to a conference and a conference on iOS development, and there was none. So I was well. The only conferences there were were in German, and I'm not a native speaker. And you know, you, you don't really want to go to a German speaking conference. So I asked around, and there was nothing. And then I organized my own conference because you know, <laughs> if nobody does it, you have to do it yourself. And then the day after the conference. We were sitting outside with some of the some of the speakers, so Pete Steinberger, and Florian Kugler, and um, Daniel Eggert, and we were talking about maybe writing a blog together, 
And after thinking about it for a week more, I managed to convince the other two, Daniel and Florian, to say to to call it a magazine. And that really helped in in sort of finding the format. So so we decided to have a magazine with monthly issues. And we were really lucky that we immediately started working with Natalie, who was who is our copy editor, because none of us are native English speakers either. <laughs> so we started writing and and we had this person there who would make sure that our English is correct. And then Daniel, who worked at Apple, he just knows so much. And at that time, I was mm, relatively inexperienced and Florian was even more inexperienced. And so we had Daniel correcting all of our technical stuff and then and then Natalie correcting our English. And we teamed up with a designer to make a nice design. And then when we launched it, it really... Um, I think it really hit a sweet spot because it was sort of longer articles and well edited and well designed. And it sort of all the people who were involved contributed to it. And, and like if one of us would have been missing, it would have been a very different thing and probably not nearly as good. And it was just, you know, sort of right time, right place, right people. And yeah, then we sort of took it from there. Well, it turned out really well. And I think probably you know most most of our listeners and i think most iOS developers in general have heard of objectivec.io and have read it and benefited from it I, I certainly have i haven't read every single article and every single issue but i but the ones that have interested me have just been really well done so i'm glad that i'm glad that that happened you know sometimes i think it's really easy to have a a cool idea with some friends and you talk about doing it but um it's a lot harder to actually make it happen and, and turn into a success and it takes a lot of work so yeah, so I think you. it was, well, thank you. It was just, you know, we were really lucky. Um, so at that time when we started, Florian and me had a bit of extra time and, you know, we were lucky to be working with Daniel who just knew so much. And in the beginning we would write our articles and, and Daniel would send them back and say, no, 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 it's all wrong. <laughs> and, you know, going through that and sort of trying to figure out what things, what was correct and how things really worked. I was just learning so much. And I think, you know, having these people around for all of us was a, was a really great experience. And we were also so lucky to have all these guest authors. So we basically out of the blue would email people sort of cold email people saying, Hey, yeah, do you want to write for us? And so many great people said yes and, and wrote and, yeah, it was just, I don't know, it was it was a really good thing to do, but it was also very, it cost a lot of effort. And at some point we sort of ran out of ideas and inspiration and we decided to, to put it on hold. Right. Well, I was going to ask you about that. So you did 24 issues. Um, the last one was last year sometime, and which was about audio. And, and I spent the last five years working on audio apps. So um, that one was particularly interesting to me and it was good. But then you kind of quit, but you're, but it's not, you're not doing the magazines, but you're doing other cool stuff now. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we wanted to, to do some books and two years ago when Swift came out, I realized like, oh my God, now we can do functional programming. <laughs> so I had to, I just really wanted to write this book about functional programming in Swift. And I managed to convince Florian and Wouter, my, my co-authors to do it with me and yeah, I just, you know, I I sort of felt the obligation to 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 show people what kind of cool stuff you can do with with functional programming. It's not definitely not a silver bullet, 
and it's definitely not a solution for everything but there are some really nice things that you can you can take away from it and yeah so we we started writing that book and that basically is a full-time thing you know it's it's a lot of work to write a book and because it worked really well we started writing more books and a while ago we wanted we realized that we wanted to, to sort of do more regular things again you know a book is a really big project and takes a long time and we wanted to to ship more often and do more quicker things and then i think in january florian and me said like let's let's do videos and we experimented for a long time uh, with different formats and different ways of of doing everything and then we found that short sort of discussion like videos worked well for us um so we ended ended up making swift talk and it's it's been really fun and i don't know how long we can how long we can keep that up but uh, we have a lot of ideas still so what other types of projects are you working on other than video the last months were full-time book writing and and then making videos and i think yeah the last two years i've mostly been doing that writing books uh, making videos uh, researching swift and sometimes we give workshops and yeah we we wrote some mac apps so first our last app was written in swift it's called scenery and before that we wrote um, a mac app called dexet but i'm not really involved in the daily development of that anymore oh and there's there's one more thing in a week from now we're organizing a small conference called the functional swift conference and we organized it two times before three times i think two times in in brooklyn and this edition is going to be in Budapest. And it's just something I do with two friends, Agnes and Brandon. The conference is for free. We don't pay anything. We don't make anything. It's basically no money involved. And it's just a hobby thing to get all the functional Swift people together and, you know, have a few nice days in Budapest. So for spending this hour talking about mutating, how are they going to let you win the conference? Well, that's my uh, that's my, that's my secret plan. Well, I, I organized the conference, so they'll have to let me in. I'm going to tell all the functional people that they uh, they should be mutating more, which is basically the opposite of what they want to hear. I, I want to see a GoPro in that room when this happens. <laughs> yeah, so maybe to to come back to to that topic for just a little bit. So in the beginning, we talked a little bit about mutating and how sort of these global effects can be dangerous to your code. So if if you're mutating things globally, and especially when you're mutating something in a very different place than from where you're using it, this can sort of lead to unexpected cases. And the big thing with Swift structs is that Swift structs, the mutating is only local and it's never global. So you're only mutating the local variable and you're not mutating any other variables. So that's why sort of it has all the benefits of mutating, but none of the drawbacks. That's a good point, because if you're creating a function that you know you pass on something, you create a function, you return it. If it's a if it's a reference type, you have to worry about what they're doing with that if you're using it internally. If it's if it's a struct, you know, you don't have to worry about it. You can they can do whatever they want with it. And with mutating, they can change values or do whatever they're harsh content, but you don't have to worry about it. It's off somewhere else. They made a copy of it, and that keeps your own code safer. So that's one case where you can mix and match them, and that would be a good good benefit, getting the best of both worlds in, that, in those cases. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, mutating is, is, is a, 
even to f to functional programmers, it's a very natural thing and a very normal thing. You just you only expect it to be local, and you don't be you don't expect that mutation changes global state. And I think, you know, the way that Swiftstruct solved this is exactly that. You have local mutation, but you're not changing global state, and you have basically the the way that you can naturally express algorithms without uh, the complications. If people want to learn more, Chris, how can they how can they do that? Like it, like they want to learn how to actually apply this to their their code. Yeah, so there there are definitely a lot of things uh, you could do. So first of all, it's just working with structs and like working with arrays, looking at differences between let and var and seeing what happens. And then you know the Swift programming guide has a lot of good information on this. If you want to go more into the detail about how this stuff works below the hood, you can either look at the compiler, which is probably, you know, unless you know C++, it's not as easy. Or you could, of course, read one of my books. I think Advanced Swift would probably be the best one for that. We're updating it right now, and it should be finished in like one or two weeks. Maybe by the time the episode is public, it's already out. And yeah, I think, but, you know, reading reading is just one thing and it can help a little bit, but in the end, just playing around with it and, and, and working with it will definitely give you the best understanding. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to some picks. Andrew, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got, well, I think really just one pick today. My pick, well, it is, I'm going to kind of continue with my recent uh, retro Mac. Well, no, I have two picks. I just, just thought of another one so my recent retro mac picks are going to continue my first pick is is actually a podcast called the retro mac cast which i just started listening to recently but it has been around since 2006 which is a long life for a podcast they're up in the 400s their episode numbers are up in the 400s right now they're still doing it it's two guys that collect old macs and talk about them and have guests on and it's pretty fun and interesting if you're if you're into that sort of thing and I've been enjoying it lately. And then my second pick is kind of along those same lines. It's actually some forums. And they are they are called the 68kmla.org forums. 68k meaning 68k Mac, which is Macs before PowerPC. And MLA stands for Macintosh Liberation Army. Anyway, these are just forums with a bunch of old Mac enthusiasts. And the thing I really like about them is there are real technical experts there. So I, I've been I've been working on a Mac Plus and having a hard time getting it to boot from an external drive. And I asked a question there and immediately got an answer from a guy about how it was some deficiency in a certain version of the Mac Plus ROM that didn't support a certain SCSI command because the SCSI standard wasn't finalized. And it's just really esoteric stuff. But but people there know, you know, it's 30 years obsolete and they still know this stuff. So pretty cool resource if, if you're doing anything with old Macs. Those are my picks. Awesome. Jane, what are your picks? So not John Cage. That's not my pick today. Today, this week, during this week, it's the Twin City Startup Week where they just showcase everything that's happening in the in the startup community up here, Minneapolis, St. Paul. It's great events. So there's a lot of big events, and they will actually fly people out. So if you're interested in checking it out, they will book you a ticket and reimburse you. So, you know, if, you, if most people listening to this program would qualify. You know, like every place, we're looking for more development talent, and we've got a lot of cool things. We've got huge companies like Target doing incubators. So there's a lot of cool things happening. So if you want a tr free trip to Minneapolis in September, where weather is beautiful in September, fall is awesome. So don't worry about that. Maybe next year. 
uh, check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's a, it's a cool event and it happens all over the place. That's my pick. All right, Rod, what are your picks? Can you hear me? Yep. By the way, Rod's back. Yay. <laughs> hey. Yeah. Sorry. I came in late. I had to, I had another phone call and just wasn't able to get right on. But anyway, I wanted to pick everything that Chris has done. I've really enjoyed the books. Functional programming and Swift was a lot of a fun read. So thank you, Chris, for, for writing all that stuff. And I'd also like to pick UI document picker, U controller. I just put that in my app and I was able to rip out my Dropbox dependency and use iCloud Drive and everything. So it worked really nice. Those are my picks. Awesome. I've got a couple of picks. The first one is a book. I just finished it last night. I've been listening to it on Audible. It is called Michael Vay, Fall of Hades. So it's the next book in that series. I really enjoyed them. I've really enjoyed the books all the way through. So if you're looking for something, it's young adult fiction. So I guess there were some other popular series that were young adult as well, like The Hunger Games and stuff. So yeah, it's it's kind of on that level as far as reading level goes and the complexity of the plot line. But it was it, they're fun books and I really enjoyed them. So I'm going to pick those. And I'm also going to pick Webinar Jam. So this is software that I've been using for a while now to put together webinars and online conferences. I switched off of Crowdcast mainly because I couldn't get high-definition recordings off of it. And Webinar Jam uses Hangouts on Air. And since Hangouts on Air record HD, I can get HD or pretty darn close. So I've been enjoying that. I've been doing webinars all last week and this week, and I'm going to continue to do them. The ones for, through the end of the year are focused on finding a job. So if you want to check that out, go to getacoderjob.com and check it out. And then, yeah, so the picks are Webinar Jam and I guess Get a Coder Job. I'm hoping to make some good progress on that book over the next few weeks. So keep an eye out for that as well. It's a book and it's going to be the webinar series as an online course. So, you know, if you're trying to find a job, if you're new to programming, this is pretty much geared directly toward you. So, Chris, what are your picks? Yeah, I have three of them. I don't know if that's too much. Uh, but uh, I just want to give a, like a shout out to to some less well-known developers. So maybe we can start with with Carol. He he's writing these data structures in Swift, and he's really pushing Swift to the limits. So he has this open source implementation of a B tree, and I don't know. It's just really cool to have a look at it and and try to understand it. I don't fully understand it, but anytime I look at it and try to read about it, I learn a lot about data structures and about how Swift works. The second one is by Ulrich. He's writing a Game Boy assembler in Swift. So he's writing the parser and, and also, I think, an executor to, to run Game Boy assembly code. And I don't know if in the end you can run, run full Game Boy games, but uh, it's all written in Swift and it works on a Mac or on iOS. And then the final one is just Kyle Fuller's GitHub repository or GitHub profile. He makes a lot of uh, cool stuff and he has a lot of interesting things around web development for Swift and sort of making things more standards. And anytime I look at his GitHub profile, there is some kind of new cool projects and it's just somebody to keep an eye on. All righty. Well, I guess we already asked, you know, how do people follow you? So. Anyway, thank you for coming. This was a really fun discussion, and it's kind of a, a different way of doing things, I think, than most of the panel does them. So, you know, those trade-offs are definitely things to, to think over and figure out how that can affect your code. So we'll go ahead and wrap up the show, and we'll catch you all next week. <laughs>